0: All right, this is David Spence uh, for EnergyTradeoffs.com and I'm here today with Eric Bieber. Eric is a professor of law at Cal Berkeley who focuses on environmental law, natural resources law, and energy law. Uh, And We're going to talk today about Eric's uh, article called Law in the Anthropocene Epic. Thanks for sitting down with us, Eric.
1: Thanks for taking the time to talk with me, David. I appreciate it.
0: Sure. So um, I want to talk about Uh, A number of aspects of this article, but I thought one way we might start is just by sort of laying uh, laying out the basic structure of of the argument here. And, you know, basically you're starting from a premise that comes from geology, which is that we are now in a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, uh, characterized by uh, significant and rapid changes in the earth triggered by humans.
1: Yeah, I mean, the basic idea is, um, I'm not sure if it's been formally yet adopted by Earth scientists, but a lot of them have been talking about how human impacts on a global scale are causing the kinds of changes in Earth systems that, in geologic history, so we're talking billions of years, are associated with other major breakpoints in geologic eras.
0: Right, and so your article is is basically um, acknowledging the the magnitude of those changes and exploring what those imply uh, for for the law. The need to uh, mitigate, adapt, otherwise react to these changes has implications for law and policy, and that's really what this article is aimed at exploring.
1: That's right. For, list, for readers who are not familiar with how much humans are changing the planet, and it, uh, I try to give an overview of that, and that's, uh obviously includes climate change. It's a wide range of other planetary systems, including acidification of the oceans, uh, which is caused by uh, emissions of carbon dioxide by humans. Uh, dramatic changes in the amount of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus that cycle on a global scale. Uh, impacts in terms of uh, conversion of terrestrial lands uh, and appropriation of what's called product net primary productivity by humans. That's the amount of uh, sunlight that's captured by plants and turned into uh, biological resources. Net primary productivity are now basically controlled or ser- significantly altered by humans, and that has impacts, for instance, on things like biodiversity on a global scale. Um, And then I try to identify some additional characteristics of these changes that I think are relevant for the legal system, Uh, one of which is that these changes are accelerating, Uh, the rate of change is going up, and this is due to a combination of population growth of humans, uh, increased economic activity by human societies, and increased rates of technological change where new, uh, new impacts are quickly uh, developed by humans and then quite rapidly scale up. And then another uh, component of this is that this is not just a few large power plants or factories. It really is the aggregation of really billions of people's choices about what they consume, what they eat, uh, how they interact with a uh, modern industrial society. Um, and that raises a range of challenges uh, for the legal system.
0: Yeah, on that last point, you, in a couple of places, you you basically you talk about the fact that we're now uh, facing the prospect of having to address the behaviors of individuals, which is typically not something that we've done through environmental law. You quote Mike Vandenberg as saying, "We are the polluters." Uh,
1: yeah, this is not going to go away. There's going to be billions of people on the planet. We're going to have vibrant, expanding, or at least very large human economies uh, over the next many decades. And so it's a really long-term problem we will have to manage.
0: Yeah, and consistent with that broad view, you don't, it's not really a paper that's aimed at advocating for this or that policy, you know, carbon tax versus command and control versus something else. It's really about the argument that no matter what policy options we choose, it's going to result in sort of fundamental changes in the relationship between governments and individuals.
1: That's right. Um, And so there's two ways of understanding sort of what I see as the inevitability of this. One is sort of how you might react to various ways in which humans affect the planet, whether it's trying to reduce those impacts or adapt to those impacts or so on. And the other is the, the range of policy tools you might choose to whatever your, um, uh, whatever your goals are. So on the first side, it probably is intuitive to a lot of people how uh, trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is going to involve a significant amount of government intervention. But I, what I wanted to also highlight in the paper is that that's also going to be true even if your primary response is adaptation. In other words, fine, we'll let climate change happen. We're going to just have society adapt to those impacts. And that's going to result in significant government involvement in a variety of ways. One of them might be, for instance, uh, constructing seawalls or riprap along water uh, shorelines to prevent erosion causes negative consequences in many cases to neighboring landowners or to other areas along the coastline by uh, accelerating erosion. So that implies that there's probably going to be some government intervention to manage those externalities. Uh, But more probably importantly than that, a lot of the adaptation is going to require changes in public investments. And we're not, in many cases, given the scale of what we're talking about, we're not talking about moving individual landowners. We're talking about moving whole communities. Uh, And when you're talking at that scale, there's necessarily a public component of what you're doing in order to coordinate among all the members of the community, maintain community services, community community. Uh, sort of community coherence or cohesiveness, which is really important for many people, uh, as well as the public services and public infrastructure that are part of that community. And, you know, I think we're starting to see the increase in global migration that will result from climate change. As an example of the implications that that will have politically, economically and socially, You could look at the impact of about 5 million refugees coming out of Syria since 2015, and the movement of those refugees has had a huge impact on the politics and economics of the Middle East and Europe and created a lot of instability. Um, That's a fraction of the refugees we're going to see moving uh, in the 21st century as a result of climate change, even just from adaptation for plausible ranges of where we end up without really dramatic reductions in emissions.
0: Implicit in that point, but made explicit in the paper, is that it's, it's a, you're issuing a challenge, I guess, to those who would argue that of some combination of technological innovation and markets that get prices right is all we need.
1: Yeah. Uh, one thing to emphasize there is, you know, carbon taxes might be seen as, you know, less intrusive, and in some ways, perhaps they are. But one, they have their limits, which I can get into later, but more importantly, they still have the coercion of the state behind them. And that's, I think, one reason why advocates for limited government have even been skeptical of carbon taxes as an approach here. And subsidies on the surface appear nice and voluntary because you just choose the money or not subsidies require enforcement, right? We're not just giving money away for free, we're giving money in return for people saying they're going to do things we want them to do and we'll supervise whether they do it. And if they don't do it, right, we'll prosecute them for fraud or violating the contracts they entered into for the subsidies. And that of course involves state coercion as well, ultimately. And then the last example is talking about using primarily private law to address climate change. The concept here, And I think the problem here is the result of that is that you've now created property rights that are ultimately still enforced by state coercion that apply to everyone who has an action that affects the global climate. And if you, you know, what I just said, everyone's actions are affecting the global climate. Suddenly you have dramatically expanded the scope of state coercion to enforce those property rights across a wide range of individual actions. Once you're recognized that you're dealing with a problem, that involves millions or billions of individual actions, and that is a global implications. It's kind of hard to see how you don't end up with a significant increase in government action and ultimately coercion at the end.
0: And you, and you explore these ideas in, in, in more detail in part, uh, I believe it's part three of the article um, where you get into sort of the various specific changes in private law and public law that are likely to at least be confronted if not adopted uh if we really want to deal with all the, the the collective harm being created by these as you billions of individual actors um and th- I found those fascinating and uh provocative Uh, in particular the parts in both the public law and the private law portions about expanding the notion of causation. Yeah. Uh, And could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, sure.
1: Um, So there's a lot of of, uh, areas of law where we restrict liability based on cutting off causal chains and sort of saying that connections between your action and ultimate harm to someone else – are too remote or attenuated or small that we won't hold you legally liable and so one you can see the the problem that presents to dealing with issues in the anthropocene if many of the harms that are affecting society that we need to address are caused by the aggregation of millions and billions of actors that's it's very hard to see how any of those actions fall within the scope of proximate cause. And so you're seeing this in some of the litigation, the nuisance litigation against major fossil fuel companies in the U.S. where they look and say, look, the U.S. is only a fraction of global emissions. We're only a fraction of that fraction. Our emissions are distributed over a century or, or more in time. Uh, how can you hold us responsible for all the harms that are occurring We're a small fraction of the fraction, That that's not enough, uh, to find proximate cause or causation, uh, on top of which, right, the challenges of connecting an individual emitters emissions to the specific harm suffered by a plaintiff, right, when the medium through which that causal chain goes is the global atmosphere and climate. Right. Um, and of course, the flip side of that is, if those companies aren't liable, no one is liable, except maybe, you know, maybe public entities like national governments are the only things that you could hold liable i think proximate cause can be understood as an effort to create a space around our individual actions if we held you liable for everything you did you might be paralyzed into inaction and in the criminal context right then the state could use anything you did to hold you liable for a wide range of criminal penalties that you had no idea you were ever ever on the hook up for you could see that that might be in tension with a liberal notion of government where government is liber- limited. It tries to reserve a broad space for individual action and constrain state coercion over individuals.
0: So let me just, before we leave that idea, let me just ask a uh, uh, follow-up on that. So we t- we spoke the other day with Michael Berger at the Sabin Center. One of the things we talked about was the Judge Alsup decision in the California Cities case. Uh, which the dismissal of which or his reasoning behind the dismissal echoed some of what you're, what you just said um, about, uh, about individual responsibility. I think he may even said, we have to look at ourselves um, as polluters, but he also made another point, which is relevant to the last point you made about sort of suppressing individual initiative, which is that there's, there were also enormous benefits associated with these activities, Um, social benefits, uh, which we which we don't want to leave out of the equation here. How, how do you factor that into your thinking?
1: Uh, well, that's, you know, our, that's arguably something, well, that's arguably something we've always done in tort law, right? Like that's the balancing of costs and benefits for negligence liability, or for that matter, nuisance liability. Once you've done that, uh, unless you're going to sort of do blanket immunity for a wide range of actions, you know, you're still going to be, faced with this challenge that there's probably a lot of things that we all do in our day-to-day lives that cause harm to uh people elsewhere on the planet and it you know you did the social you know calculus however you want to do it may not be worth it and we shouldn't be doing it or doing it differently you know i i'm sympathetic to the idea that we shouldn't be doing criminal liability for people eating meat that's uh not helpful or beneficial or useful at all um but that doesn't mean, right, you might not consider down the road uh, something broader, right? Like, at some point, are you going to ban the internal combustion engine? And are you going to make it a criminal violation to construct or use an internal combustion engine? Uh, but if you think about it uh, from a just a broader, like, okay, let's impose a carbon tax on everyone who uses an internal combustion engine uh, to encourage people to move off gas to, say, electric vehicles. Well that's again state coercion requiring you to pay a tax for you to use your gas and we already pay gas taxes this is not a fundamentally different concept uh, but it is an expansion of what we do and that again for a variety of reasons has made a range of uh, range of political uh, perspectives uncomfortable
0: you also make a point about sort of federal uh, their, their federalism our notions of federalism may have to change or we may have to recognize a right on the part of the federal government to regulate some of these behaviors that have traditionally been thought of as being within state police power.
1: Yeah. So again, if uh, lots of individual actions that traditionally would have been thought of as isolated and not having broad impacts. So think of building a house on your land or um, how a farmer does their agricultural activities or a, far, a landowner you know, cutting down logging forests, um, those would have thought of it, most having maybe minor you know, spillover effects on a regional scale maybe for habitat, uh, for wildlife or water quality issues in a regional level. Well, it turns out that many of those activities now have continental or global scale impact. So about a quarter of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from farming, agricultural, land use, logging activities. Um, Uh, And, you know, even at a continental scale, uh, there's a large amount of nutrient pollution that comes down through the Mississippi River Basin and Missouri River Basins and Ohio River Basins in the center of the U.S. and North America, and that's produced a giant dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico where the mouth of the Mississippi is. That's the result of the aggregation of thousands, tens of thousands of decisions by farmers in that watershed about how they use their land. And so that means that what, you know, a land use decision that the Supreme Court has, ex- you know, explicitly said, we think, or at least plurality opinions have explicitly said, we think land use is a local decision or a state-level decision, not a federal, let alone global-level decision. Uh, it turns out those land use decisions do have global impacts. Well, that raises real questions about line drawing in a federalist, federal system. And it can cut both ways, right, because the flip side is that you know, if local governments can make arguments about how land use shapes climate change, that might give them arguments against preemption of state action in the climate change context because climate change is shaping their land use decisions. Uh, so it's it's creates a much messier division between federal, state, local, and global, and that has implications for the Supreme Court's um, jurisprudence standard the Commerce Clause and other federalism doctrines, but also the Treaty Clause, like how broad does federal government treaty power work? I mean... I I see you know if the federal government entered into a climate change treaty and one quarter of those emissions are from activities like land use and forestry and agriculture it's it seems entirely in the scope of that treaty for the federal government to start impose regulations on land use to reduce emissions and agricultural activities well that would be in some tension with the existing supreme court case law
0: to some extent we've sort of made political choices to exempt these these actors um, under under environmental laws. So Clean Water Act has a bunch of exemptions for agricultural activities. Uh, household hazardous wastes under RCRA are yep. exempted, um, you know, and even just in the, as a matter of prosecutorial discretion, the, the sort of prototypical example of a, uh, that was cited by a dissenter, I think, in a Clean Water Act case about a child throwing a gum wrapper into the Hudson River. Yep. Um, these are all, Choices that are made to 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 avoid prosecuting or enforcing against individuals, uh, we make a political choice not to enforce against these entities. I suppose you're implying, or suggesting, or maybe stating explicitly that um, that may have to change.
1: It's going to be a lot harder to manage the problems we need to manage uh, because more and more of those kinds of those kinds of aggregative aggregations of individual actions will be increasingly a large share of the problems we're trying to manage, right? So even in the Clean Water Act context, non-point source pollution, pollution that comes from runoff, not from, say, a pipe entering into a river. So that's the pollution that comes from a lot of farms. It comes from driveways. It comes from lawns. It comes from street runoff if you don't have a stormwater system. All of those runoff, they're not regulated in the Clean Water Act, but for a lot of waterways, that's the primary remaining source of pollution that's keeping those waterways from becoming clean. And you can only crack down on the point sources so much, realistically. And so that raises the question of how you manage them. And I, uh, uh, so that's sort of, in one way, sort of the challenge on uh, the paper raises at the end is, uh, there are good political, economic, um, even moral reasons we're skeptical of trying to regulate too much this wide range of individual activity. Um, and I connect it in part to this, you know, understanding of a liberal state that has limited government coercion and leaves a space for the individual. But that's going to be increasingly hard to maintain as we see the Anthropocene unfold. And I think a real challenge that lawyers and the legal system are going to have to rise to is to try and to come up with creative solutions to thread that needle. Um, And there are, you know, there are some ways you could get there. A carbon tax uh, is relatively non-intrusive. It can be imposed, say, at the point of extraction for a fossil fuel. So you're regulating a limited number of actors. You know, the nature of the coercion is not very different from any other tax system we have that gets you a lot, it only gets you so much, uh, if nothing else, because uh, a quarter of the emissions are not resulting from fossil fuel combustion globally. Uh, And it's worse than that for some countries. But even beyond that, there is good economic evidence that carbon taxes don't change individual consumer decisions in a wide range of scenarios, and we still need to reduce those emissions. So we're gonna have to look at other tools. And one, I think a meta lesson from this The longer you wait to deal with climate change, the more dramatic the cuts you have to make in emissions, or the more adaptation you'll have to take, or the more dramatic impacts socioeconomically and politically in terms of upheaval you'll see. And all of those are only going to make the eventual public intervention that much more rapid, intrusive, problematic. And so I, my, my pitch to people who really do care about limited government is you should be acting on
0: climate change now rather than
1: later. Yeah.
0: Your, so your paper ends on a little bit of an optimistic note by noting that um, we have had fairly rapid, at least in the larger scope of history, fairly rapid changes in the legal system in the past. Uh, and so it's not unheard of that we could have similarly significant changes in the legal system in response to this problem. Uh, your analogy is to the sort of late 19th and early 20th centuries. Can you just uh, outline that point for us? Yeah.
1: So, with the rise of industrialization, the integration of local economies into a national and eventually international economic system, you saw uh, you see an increase, a changes in a wide range of legal doctrine. So, there's examples of it that we've seen, and the New Deal is probably the most dramatic of those. Of course, it did take a global economic collapse to produce that change, and I'm kind of hoping we don't have to have that in this context. Yeah. I also, you know, I guess to temper the optimism some, the nature of the changes we're going to have to see in the Anthropocene precisely because it really is the, wide, the full range of human activity on the planet that's causing this. It's a much broader and deeper change than I think we'll have seen in prior changes. Um, and that is going to be challenging to negotiate.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much for sitting down to talk to us, Eric.
1: Yeah, thank you.